Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Calling Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ready? Turn on your radio. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. This is the Starship Sofa, everybody. Welcome, hello, and welcome to show 663. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is... I'm not, <laughs> I hope everyone is fine and dandy. 663. Oh, Camp Cupid is the main fiction by Lucy Stone. That's coming in a little bit time. But first, let's talk about... Right, I watched on Netflix, and I'd, I'd seen its like profile, i seen a trailer for it, and I was like, I didn't get into it, I, you know, this kind of first like bite of like publicity, you know, for Sweet Tooth. Then I watched it, and man, bang, right into it. I didn't realise it was a comic, I didn't know anything about it like that, and it was just absolutely fantastic, and I kind of gobbled those, I, th- I don't know, is it eight episodes, something like that? In zero time. And I just loved it. And it was just like brilliant character development. Do you know what I mean? The craft of a story. You can just watch it on the you know the scriptwriter for that. Oh man, like translate it from a like a comic and get it on the screen and get that emotion, get that anxiety with everything, you know what I mean? It's saying it's troubled times. What a well, you loved it. Let me know because listen, this is this is a funny thing. I come off watching that, thinking that was like probably the best thing I've seen this year by a long shot. That was what I was thinking. I finished it. You know how that kind of hunger gap you finish and you're like you want to. Shall I rewatch it? Shall I rewatch it? And I was actually flicking through Amazon Prime and I seen Clarkson's Farm. This is Jeremy Clarkson, UK TV and Top Gear presenter. Oh my God! <coughs> Excuse me. That was unreal how good it was. Yes, I was thinking, yes, and it's got a little bit of Jerry Clarkson, Top Gear-ish, but it's so more real. It's so more... And, and it's got nothing... Sorry, it's got nothing to do with science fiction. But what a TV show. And it's getting, like, unreal reviews. Do you know what I mean? Just, like, how down-to-earth, how... This one program or this one series has done more to highlight the plight of farming than 20, 30 years of country file. And it was, do you know what I mean? And on a farm, you see, you see death right up close. And Jeremy got all of that. Do you know what I mean? It was just all in his face, most days and trouble most. And just, char- not characters, but the, the people who he's like got helping on the farm. Honestly, I know this is like not science fiction. A feel-good reality check of what like UK farm... And I'm guessing all farmers in general, what they go through. Because, yes, you hear, always hear farmers. And I'm just... This is where I'm coming from, from the weather. This is what I'm getting on your kind of... You know, I do my YouTube channel and growing and gardening and everything. 
and I grumble about the weather. And when you hear, <clears throat> you know, like farmers grumbling, this is, you know, you always just think, well, it's, it's raining. Yeah, yeah. But the re- what you see is the reality of it. Do you know what I mean? And it's just, it's heartbreaking. Do you know what I mean? It's totally heartbreaking. And Jeremy Clarkson is the right buffoon to begin with. But then... If, it's just an amazing program, do you know what I mean? And it's like I've watched two of the best programs back to back within the last two weeks of like talking to you and just been fantastic. So honestly, stamp of approval. <laughs> Watch them too. Sweet Tooth on Netflix and Clarkson's Farm on Prime. <gasps> you just will not be disappointed. Do you know what I mean? Just fantastic, man. Brilliant TV, and that's what I love, do you know what I mean? So, moving on, let's get into the main fiction. Just before I get there, I'm feeling a little bit, I've got a little bit cold. The son, Junior, came back up from college and he had the sniffles as soon as we picked him up and I knew straight, straight away, as soon as Reed gets it, I get it, If within any vicinity of him. And sure enough, it kind of latched on to us there, so feeling a little bit sorry for myself as well. Anyway, Camp Cupid by Lucy Stone. This story first appeared in House of Zolo's Journal of Speculative Literature, Volume 1. Lucy Stone is a freelance writer, lexicographer, and mother of one. Her stories have appeared in many speculative journals, including Dreamforge Magazine, Electric Spec, House of Zolo, and Bard Sages Quarterly. Her major preoccupations are folklore, romance, and mental illness. Her stories contain many villains, but the ultimate one is usually despair, and she will fight it with every word she writes, even prepositions. She can be found on her website and as LucyStoneWriter.com or on Twitter as well. Now, this story is narrated by the one and only Summer Brooks. Summer Brooks is a story addict who watches too much television and she enjoys putting her encyclopedic science fiction geek knowledge to the test in discussions about sci-fi horror comics. And she's been doing just that on Slice of Sci-Fi since 2005. And as co-host, producer and host and AIC, of the Babylon podcast, co-host from 2006 to 2012, 2006, so many years ago, summer man, what were we doing there, we were young, young, free and daft man, when podcasting first came out. Summer is also an avid reader and writer of science fiction, fantasy and thrillers and a handful of published credits to her name. Next on her agenda is writing an urban fantasy action adventure and a monster movie extravaganza. She also narrates for Tales to Terrify, Escape Pod, amongst others, and she's doing audiobooks in her sights. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present Camp Cupid by Lucy Stone. It was built as a summer camp, but the need overflowed the season. Now it's Camp Cupid all year round, forever. The brochures, there are still brochures, though none of us came here by choice, describe the place as a cross between a boot camp and a boutique. It's a cluster of chalets, surrounded by packed earth and chain-link fences, but the insides hold strange luxuries. They give us mirrors, powders, curlers, a whole avenue of ball gowns on wire hangers. You can trail your fingers along it, listening to the whispers of silk, 
tulle, velvet, organza. A different voice for every fabric, all of them murmuring that you could be beautiful. You could be beautiful. And God, you'll need to be. At the end of this avenue are framed pictures of couples holding hands, looking slightly tussled but flushed with triumph, the previous year's class and the year before that. There's a banner over the little gallery which reads, Camp Cupid, helping young people find happiness since 2003. And it's lovely until you think about the people who aren't in the pictures. The superfluous girls who didn't find a hand to hold. They're called near misses. Close, but no cigar. They're buried in the cemetery across the fence. In the winter, when there's no foliage to screen the gravestones from view, you can see them. In fact, the main lounge is laid out so that if you look through the window to the east, you see the boys' camp. And if you look through the window to the west, you see the cemetery. Sunrise and sunset. A lot of thought was put into it at some stage. There are some who look as if they aren't playing. Sarah Atkin, pronounced Atkin, but woe betide you if you suggest she could do without the superfluous eye, just sits in the corner by the window laughing at the short girls in heels or the fat girls in tummy-tucking underwear. She says we look so desperate, as if it's possible not to be. Then there are the ones who pretend to help you while secretly undermining your confidence. You should try the lavender soap, Bella will say, out of the blue. It's really good for greasy skin. You walk away from a conversation with her feeling vaguely upset, but with no idea where the sting was. And the girls who've given in, they're the worst of all. Vero, with the wobbly eyes to match her wobbly chin, and salty tear tracks down her cheeks. She's 200 pounds, and Mrs. A says there's not a lot that cosmetics can do for her. She stares out of the west-facing window all the time now, almost wistfully. I wish I was a man. I'd take delight in choosing the unlikeliest girls, proving the teachers wrong, kindling hope in the ones who'd lost it. But then, perhaps that's what Vera was counting on. Everyone has a strategy. I want to live as much as any of them, but I've suffered the misfortune of falling in love early. I want a particular one. In the mad free-for-all which will ensue on prom night, I'll be making a beeline for the boy with the forest green spectacles. We met by accident. It's hard to put plumbing in the middle of nowhere, so the girls' and boys' bathrooms stand back-to-back at the end of a long avenue of cedars. The second-to-last stall has a knot of wood that's been poked out by some enterprising voyeur. And that's how we first saw each other. In the early mornings, when the barbed wire over the fences is wet with dew and puts you in mind of a coarse green spiderweb, I go down to the bathrooms to meet him. 
The regularity of my bells has become proverbial in the main lounge, but I don't care. His name is Adam. He has gray eyes and freckles, a thin, expressive face made all the more expressive by the fact that there's always a bruise on it somewhere, across his cheekbones or his chin, peeping out from his collar. They beat the men, I think, the slow ones. They wouldn't do that with the women because it might make us look ugly on prom night. He's very lonely. They've been told about their power and it scares them. It scares me too, I said, the first time we talked. He poked a finger through the woodwork in search of my own. I gave it to him. You know what they do to the last man to pair up? No. I don't either, but it's bad. Some kind of ritual mortification. I wanted to say, but at least you'll survive. Whatever happens, you'll survive. They wouldn't waste a male. There aren't enough of them. But I didn't. Perhaps he thinks there are worse things than not surviving. I used to be imaginative like that. Sometimes I wonder if he's playing a game of his own, if he meets other girls here and persuades them that he'll be waiting for them on prom night. You can't help thinking that way once you spent a few weeks here. I still walk back to the chalets full of hope whenever I've seen him. Beyond the chain-link fences, there's a forest. When I worked at the hospital and could frequently go from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. without eating, drinking, going to the bathroom, or sitting down, I used to dream about forests. By the time I got back to my bed, I'd be too tired for thoughts, so colors and images would creep into my head just to keep me company. I'd see smoky blues and pine-dark greens, the green of velvet drapes, ice cream dotted with nubbly bits of chocolate, but mostly the green of a pine forest. I could see every dew-soaked needle, the black trunks, the scraps of mist that threaded through the canopy. There was no me in that forest, and certainly no mirrors. There was no one to care what I looked like or whether I got married. Why aren't you married already? It's a standard question in the girls' camp, but from a man it seems like a compliment. Why hasn't someone already snapped you up? I'm a school orphan, I tell him. My parents probably died in the Washington bombings. Probably? I don't remember them. I was raised at the university, and then the university hospital. There were no eligible men in my district, but plenty of people who needed medical care. I guess I could have traveled to another district, but there were never enough doctors, and the government kept issuing me dispensation to remain unmarried and work. I suppose I thought it could last forever. I try to look at him through the peephole, but his eye is already jammed up against it. All I can see is the reflective lens of his glasses. Is he wondering how old I am? Should I tell him? 
So you've never seen a man, he says at last. I have, I reply almost gleefully. I've seen them on operating tables and in dissection rooms. I've seen inside their abdominal cavities. I try the peephole again. He's backed away from it, his mouth slightly open. What a scarlet Jezebel I must seem to him, not only endangering public morals by remaining unmarried, but viewing men outside of marriage and being proud of it. He tightens his jaw, as if he's making an effort. So there are no mysteries left for you? Just a big one, I tell him. He thinks I'm talking about sex. I am, in a way. I've certainly never done that before. But there are more compelling mysteries. I feel as though I'm skirting the edge of one right now. What's your real name, he says. Just what I told you. Amanita Jones. No one is really called Amanita. I am. I was raised by mycologists. My middle name is Muscaria. Yes, there it is, that spasm of amusement, a little twisting of his mouth. It only lasts a moment, but I get the feeling those are the moments he lives for. If I am a Jezebel, maybe he likes it. Ha! You'd get on well with the wild women. They eat hallucinogenic mushrooms and put themselves into battle trances. I wait breathlessly for more information, but nothing comes. The wild women are, well, I guess they're the resistance. They're supposed to be the unquiet spirits of the near misses, but they must be real enough, because there are bombings. I used to hear about them at the university. They run a black market in cigarettes and contraceptives, and all the things we're not allowed to use anymore in case they stop us from having sons. How do you know that, I say, when the silence has gone on too long for me to bear it? Haven't you seen them? I look through the peephole, in case he's got them stashed in a cubicle somewhere. He's smiling again, so he's probably making fun of me. But I don't care. I want to see them, I say. Well, keep your eyes open. In the mornings, they're early risers. You would be too if you lived outdoors. Friday is dress rehearsal day. We're allowed to put on our prom dresses. Mrs. A says they are to us what a gun is to a soldier, our designated weapon. And nobody would think of sending a soldier into battle without teaching him to use his gun. It works well enough. I know my prom dress like my own skin. I know how to swish impressively in it and how to be quiet. I know how to keep it from tripping me up when I'm dancing. There's no point in describing it here, no use in pretending I'm not interested. Whether it is, as they say, natural for women to get a kick out of this stuff or whether it's just me, I love it. It is just me, perhaps, because Vero threw up over hers. 
They had her scrubbing in the wash house all night, but they'll buy her a new one because nothing is allowed to mar those prom night pictures. So, my dress. It's lavender silk with straps of a deeper purple crisscrossing under my breasts. It's sort of empire line, which I like, although I'm not sure the mating rituals were more civilized in those days. As a further treat, or further training, Mrs. O comes on Fridays to do our hair and makeup. I like Mrs. O. She's a Native American, a Chinook, which sounds nothing like it's spelled, and they say she's had dealings with the wild women. She walks with a limp and deliberately parks her car at the north end of the compound so that she can walk slowly round the chain-link fences surrounding the boys' camp and report back to us. She's besieged the moment she arrives, all of us clustering around her, asking what they're like, while Sarah sits in back and prepares to hoist her eyebrows. Are they handsome? Strong? Do they look gentle? What do they want? Oh, God, what do they want? I've asked her once or twice, when she leans in close to fix my makeup, whether she's seen a boy with forest green spectacles, but she says she hasn't. This bothers me a little. But then I think maybe he stays indoors to avoid trouble. Or maybe they make him stay indoors as a punishment for being small and sensitive. Mrs. O has 32 girls clamoring for her expertise, but she doesn't hurry. When it's my turn to be made up, she presses me into the chair, adjusts the table lamp, and then lets her hand hover idly over the rows of brushes and pots, as if she's waiting for inspiration. Then, so suddenly that it makes me cringe back in my chair, she snatches up a tube of mascara and screws off the lid. It's unorthodox, but she likes my eyelashes. They are poker straight and as long as her thumbnail. She used to joke that if I batted my eyelids at young men, they'd be blown away. Not so many of those jokes now, though. Prom is approaching. While she's catching my eyelashes with the black lacquered brush, she murmurs, I've seen him, your boy with the glasses. They were sticking out of his pocket, or I never would have known. Look up. I try to direct my gaze at the ceiling, through the thatch of lashes. What was he doing? I whisper. Smoking, in the teacher's lounge. She moves on to the other eye, as if nothing has happened. Are they allowed in the teacher's lounge? I say. Of course they're not. Be wary of him. He's not what he seems. Where can we talk? We can't. Just be careful. He knows I know, even though I don't know anything. For three days, I go out to the bathroom every morning as usual, but he doesn't show. Then, on the third day, he walks in late, locks himself into the cubicle and wordlessly pokes a cigarette through the peephole. I take it and wait to see if a match will follow, but it doesn't. Perhaps he expects me to rub two sticks together. We are in the wilderness, after all. Thank you, I say, 
because he doesn't seem inclined to start the conversation. Can I have a match? What do you think? I tuck the cigarette into my breast pocket. Maybe I can trade it for something. Maybe I can slip it to one of the boys on prom night and say, there's more where that came from if you choose me. I don't have to honor my promises. They won't honor theirs. Why do you keep coming back here? He says. Not forlorn anymore, but exasperated. I can see more of his teeth than I ever could. I have nothing to fear from you, and you have everything to fear from me. I'm a vanishing breed. You're a dime a dozen. What are you if you're not a student, I say? A teacher? A spy? I'm nothing to do with you. Why do you keep coming here? I shrug, though I know he can't see me. I'm taking up the eye hole. I have nothing else to do. His mouth twists with the old vinegary smile. Learning the arts of seduction? Preparing for the most important night of your life? It's boring. He is silent for a moment. Yeah, I get that. It'll cost you later. It might. I back off from the eye hole to give him a chance to look at me. I no longer think he needs to, but it just seems polite. What's your real name, I say. Do you even need the glasses? What's your status? I imagine the smile this time. It comes with a long silence. Widower, he says at last. Why didn't they marry you off again? Widower and criminal, he says slowly. It's my turn to be silent. I don't expect him to laugh. You never react to anything, do you? If you were in the periodic table, you'd be one of the noble gases. Argon, maybe. I just raised my eyebrows at this, which probably proves his point. Were you a chemist before? There's no point talking about before. I pause again, but he seems talkative, almost merry. Is he trying to confide in me or just get a reaction from me? Have you seen one of these, he says, at the hospital? There's a silver chain around his neck. He tugs it out from under his shirt and twangs it playfully. He doesn't wince, but it must be painful because those chains disappear into the skin at the back of his neck. He dips his head slightly to let me see the scars, the place at the nape of his neck where the surgeon shaved him and where hair will never grow again. Only in postmortems, I say. They're pretty messy to remove. His whole face tightens. I can't tell if it's a smile or a grimace this time. Too late, I realized that this might not have been the most tactful thing to say. They ask you to get them out, he says, so they can be used in another prisoner? That doesn't surprise me. They're very expensive. 
Do you know what they are? I frown. Are you testing me? What if I am? You're smart and you've got nothing better to do. Indulge me. It's a geopositioning device grafted onto the spine, I say. It administers a fatal electric shock if it detects you stepping outside the bounds of your prison. Ever fitted one? No! He laughs again and holds up his hands. Sorry, I didn't think you'd believe I was a criminal. Most people don't. They see the freckles in the glasses and think it's all a joke. I think of pointing out how easy it is to be a criminal these days, but somehow that seems tactless, too. But you're employed here, I say. What's your job? I half suspect I'm annoyed with him, but I can't stop myself from asking. I can't have been very attached to the boy with the forest green spectacles because his new incarnation fills me with a burning desire to know. Security, he says, with a slight wincing pause which makes me suspect it's not the whole story. And that's why the bruises? He shrugs. That's the thing about being a prisoner guard. Everybody hits you. The people trying to break out, the people trying to break in, and your jailers most of all. Who's trying to break in? I ask eagerly. The wild women? There's another long pause. And then he says in a petulant voice, You've been hogging that thing for ages. Move over. It's my turn now. I want to look at you. You want to see my lack of reaction? Yes. But we've been here too long. As soon as I step away from the peephole, I can hear footsteps on the boards outside. His side, I think. I hear him sigh across the woodwork, but he doesn't say anything. He unbolts the cubicle door with a snap and walks out. I go back the next day, and the next. I don't know why. Maybe it's just to distract myself. Prom is only a month away now, and every conversation in the girls' camp is fraught. Bella has lost all subtlety. You're ugly, 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 Amanita, and you're named after a fungus. Before they closed the borders, there used to be an exchange program for the school orphans. I shared my room for a week with a girl called Blandine from the University of Montreal. Her English was as bad as my French, and we were both awkward teens, so communicating with her was a laborious enterprise. But she never stopped asking questions. She wanted to know how everybody lived their lives. Whenever she sensed us getting impatient with her persistence, she would say, Excuse me, I will only be here once. I never worked out whether she knew the borders were going to be closed or whether it was just a general maxim for life. Anyhow, I feel like Blandine when I walk down the avenue of cedars in the mornings. Suddenly, understanding is more important than avoiding pain. The next day he brings a match for me to light my cigarette, though he is just as grumpy about the gift. I smoke it inexpertly. I've never tried one before. But after some coughing from me and some coaxing from him, 
I'm puffing away like a hardened barfly. He watches me through the people. Whether he's proud of my accomplishment or envious of the cigarette, I can't tell. I get the feeling he's thrown away all pretense with me today, which means he watches greedily and doesn't give me the chance to watch back. I stare at the planks of wood which make up the cubicle wall and imagine his twisty smile. Have you met other girls here? I ask. Before me? I try to ask it in the blandest way possible. I really am, I always am, more curious than I am annoyed. But he must have heard it as a recrimination because his voice is sharp and bitter merry when he answers. Listen, little Argonaut, I don't know how it is for you. Maybe you can live in a cage without needing distractions, that's fine. I'm happy for you. But I need to smoke cigarettes and talk to intelligent women. Just talk. I don't do anything else I couldn't. And they don't break their hearts over me. They're too smart. Are you sure? I can feel his eyes prickling through the peephole. Well, with you, I'm sure of nothing. Does that make me special? You're in my top three. How many women have you done this with? Three. I do not laugh, which seems to amuse him even more. I have a way to kill his laughter, though, and I wait until he's mid-chuckle to unleash it. Where do you get the cigarettes from? Silence from the planks of wood. Black market, he says. What does that mean, out here? I lean forward, too impatient to wait for his answer. You've seen them, haven't you? That part wasn't a lie. None of it was a lie, he protests. Then he clamps his mouth shut, as if he's annoyed with himself. In a way, he knows he can trust me. Who's going to believe an unmarried woman out here? We get crazier and more volatile the closer it gets to prom night. Mrs. O has told me stories of suicides and girls found hanging from the barbed wire at dawn and horrible attacks with hot straighteners. We're the most stable class she's seen in a decade, she says, which means everyone is waiting for the other shoe to drop. Besides all that, he knows it would impress me. But there's something about it he's not anxious to acknowledge, something that doesn't make him look good. He straightens up and leaves the cubicle without a word of explanation. I strangle my protest and wait. He's checking the other cubicles. I can hear him banging doors and stomping about, very slowly, as if he's daring me to get impatient and tell him to hurry up. When he comes back, he doesn't even glance at the peephole. What time are the dormitories unlocked in the morning? Six o'clock, I say. Sometimes six-thirty if Mrs. A's had a lie-in. It's all right for some. Me? My day starts at five. I used to think there were things I missed more than sleep, but it's just sleep now. I dream about it. Isn't that funny? As early as you can, then, behind the wash house. No one patrols there if they can help it, because of the mud. 
I'm fumbling in the dark as soon as I hear the click of Mrs. A's key in the lock next morning. I know I'm not the only one whose ears prick up at the sound. There's something about it that reaches into the deepest slumber. It colors the whole room like a droplet of ink infusing in water. One door down. Only a chain-link fence and a few hundred miles of wilderness to go. I pull on my galoshes and slip out of the door. It's a beautiful morning, the kind I only ever used to see at the tail end of a horrific night. Drops catch me now and then as I pass under the trees. I head for the wash house and press my back against the wooden planks of its outside wall. The near misses must get shot somewhere out here. The tree trunks are chipped at head height, and sometimes you can see rusted chunks of metal, bullets or casings, half submerged in the ivy. It's a nice place for it. From here I can see the upward slope of the mountain, though the view is sliced into little hexagons by the chain-link fence. I let my eyes slide out of focus until the fence disappears, and the only thing in front of me is a blur of green. Then, when I pull my focus back, as if by magic, or most likely as if she were there all along, I see her. She's just standing there in plain sight. Her eyes are so open that it's disconcerting. There's a little branch curling over one side of her face like a smile. She's watching me, or watching the camp. Has something happened in the outside world since I've been here? Have the wild women gained some ground, grown bolder? I step away tentatively, and she raises her eyebrows, as if she doesn't care whether I go or stay. Behind her, the track stretches upward, through avenues of cedar and redwoods and Douglas pines. I can see the branches trembling, And it seems to me that what they are trembling with is eagerness. They've been asking after you, he says next time. He's backed away from the peephole, inviting me to scrutinize him, perhaps. It's an odd courtesy, and I treat it as suspiciously as I ought. Who have? You know who. You saw them, didn't you? They want a medic. I feel a jolt of something, but I try to squash it down. What's the nature of your involvement with them? He smiles and takes a drag on his cigarette. When his answer comes, it's thick with smoke. That's the billion-dollar question, my Argonaut. But first, you should ask what's the nature of my involvement with my captors. What do you mean? You provide security, you said so. Most of the year, yes. But on prom night, I have extra duties. The smoke has cleared away from his face now, but it doesn't give me a clue. He lets out a little hissing breath, as if he's lost patience with me. It's not ladylike to kill, that's what they told me. It's man's work. I move away from the peephole, so far away that my back is up against the cubicle door. You kill the near misses? That's right. His voice is chipper, 
and I wonder if he can see my disgust. But then I realized he has promised himself he won't look at me. That's why he backed away from the peephole. He has a strategy for dealing with this conversation, which makes me frightened because I don't. The wild women know about it, he continues. They know I'm a prisoner and not particularly loyal to the status quo. They cut me a deal. I moved back to the peephole. What kind of deal? They bring me their dead in varying degrees of freshness. I zip them up in the little body bags I've been provided with. Nobody looks at them too closely. That's unladylike, too. And the near misses, some of them, depending on how many bodies I've been given to replace them with, go free. I realize I've been holding my breath, but when it comes, I laugh it all out again. I put my back against the peephole and hope like hell that it doesn't sound like tears. They're recruiting, he says in a distant, puzzled kind of voice. They want warriors, people who have good reason to despise the government. The near misses are ideal. Put in a good word for Vero, I splutter, still curled up with laughter. The one who looks like a Valkyrie? She's already on my list. He waits until I'm quiet again which takes some time. I don't know whether it's panic or pleasure. I don't even know whether I believe him, but I laugh until my abs are aching. When it's over, I go back to the peephole and wait expectantly. I still have to shoot some of them, he says, through oddly clenched teeth. And before the wild women came, I shot them all. But I was in a terrible mood back then. I couldn't get any cigarettes. Mrs. O cries when she styles our hair for prom night, like a mother who's half overjoyed and half alarmed by how much we've grown. It's supposed to look like that, of course. That's how she keeps her job. She stammers over and over again that she's so proud, but the repetition robs it of all meaning. You need to look into her eyes past the wobbly film of tears to see the real meaning. Now don't you cry too, she says to me, as we admire my finished appearance in the mirror. You'll smudge your mascara. I tell her I don't feel like crying, and her hand tightens on my shoulder. She thinks I feel like screaming or fighting or running away, but in truth, I feel like nothing. There's a buzzing in my ears and some kind of swirling void beneath my ribcage, but it's no feeling I can put a name to. In a way, I feel powerful, as you might well do if you had a black hole in your abdomen ready to swallow up the entire world. She slides a bird-shaped clip into my hair, just above my right ear. It lines up with the pearl drop earring, making the latter look like bird shit on its inexorable descent downwards to make a mess on the hood of someone's car. He is known to the wild women, she says, barely opening her mouth. My head must have moved slightly because I can see the pearl drop wobbling, but I make no other acknowledgement. You can trust him. 
She seems to know that what she is asking is a tall order. She smiles weakly, almost apologetically, and spreads her hands. I can't trust him any more than I can trust her. Soon we'll be off. Whether married off or killed off doesn't matter. We're only for a season. They're always here. It's funny how underwhelming it is in the end. It's the same hall we used for aerobics and dancing lessons. The banners we made with their daubed, desperate letters are almost lost in the dark in the dry ice. Black and blue balloons form a kind of pebble beach on one side of the hall. There's a mirror ball throwing erratic spangles over our skin, our bare arms and shoulders. It's a monument to nostalgia, but not ours. The senators remember their own childhoods when men were not so few and in occasions like this seemed so wholesome. They want all love to be born here, in a place they know, in a setting they can control. The stage is empty but significant. That's where the final pictures will be taken, under the banner that reads, Camp Cupid, Class of 26. That's where the paired-up couples will be paraded in triumph. Presumably, the near misses will be led discreetly out of a side door while the photographer is setting up his shot. I wonder if he'll see it. Perhaps I'll see it firsthand. The lights are low, as an aid to romance and to the photographer, who might pick out some of that desperation with his sensitive lenses if there were more light to see by. I smile as he snaps past me. There's no point not smiling. They weed out all the pictures that show anything other than glee. At least this way someone from home might see me and know I made it this far. They worry about me, the mycologists. The boys are all in tuxedos. It's hard to tell them apart through the murk. They've been strategically placed around the hall, one at that table, one leaning his elbow casually on the bar. They've thought about this moment, too. They've planned their entrances just as carefully. Within two minutes, Sarah is smiling and flirting as if she doesn't know the meaning of the word scorn. I smile at her when she catches my eye, but it is not reciprocated. Suddenly, the layers of lavender silk against my skin feel very cold. Without even realizing it, I scan the semi-darkness for forest green. I've pictured this moment too many times for recent events to have had any effect on my behavior. I decide to be guided by green, since my eyes can't help but look for it. The scrawny guy to my right has green eyes, so I'll start with him. We chitter away like birds. We've been taught what to say, and they've been taught what to like. Look into their eyes as much as you dare, but not too much, said Mrs. A. Nervousness is becoming in a young woman. Well, we don't have to fake that. Mingling is crucial. Every now and then, one of the teachers or one of the security guards will gently stir us up, lead someone off by the hand, and drop them into another group. They really do want the boys to make the right choices. 
They really do want love to happen. I get through Jason, Johnny, Alexander, and Craig before I see him. He doesn't look right without a cigarette, but he does have a machine gun. He's guarding the passage between the hall and the indoor bathroom, where we go to relieve our bladders and fix our makeup with shaky hands. He speaks without turning to look at me. You look nice, Argonaut. I hang back, puzzled, until I notice the window opposite. He's watching me in its black mirrored surface. It's so odd being face to face that he's inventing his own restrictions. You want to watch out for that blonde one, he says. I've seen him biting his classmates. I look back into the hall. The blonde one's name, I think, was Alexander. What kind of watching out do you imagine I can do? I say. He tilts his head. Fair point. Even if you were rude to him, he might marry you to get back at you. Can you be ugly to him? Probably. Well, give it a try. I lean back against the wall beside him. We won't have long, five minutes at most, but there's something I need to know. He takes out a cigarette from behind his ear and fumbles in his pockets for the matches. The machine gun nudges me as he does this, but I pay it no attention. What was your crime? I say. He lights the cigarette, shakes out his match, and smiles at the opposite wall. Finally curious about that, are you? It was adultery. They killed the woman I'd been having an affair with, and my wife for not keeping me satisfied at home. And they said, hey, since you're already responsible for killing two people, why not make a career out of it? There is a silence. He doesn't turn to look at me, but I get the feeling he's waiting for something. Or for a lack of something. Oh, I say. He breathes out a long stream of smoke, as if in relief. He got what he was waiting for, but I don't know whether it was good or bad. Actually, they didn't say, why not? They said, you're going to. I look again at his reflection in the dark glass. Who was it? Perseus? Theseus? Who could only approach Medusa by looking at her in his mirrored shield? Where does it happen? I say, in a voice that probably sounds strained. The near misses? Round the back of the wash house. After the photographs, there's a final dance. They turn up the music real loud. My gun has a silencer. The couples never hear anything to alarm them. He pauses, then looks around. His eyes seem to be everywhere but on me. The wild women want you, he says softly. If you're not chosen, I can get you out. There might even be time for us. He can't go on, or he's finished. He's smiling that twisty smile again, as if he's laughing at himself. I don't know what to say, so I don't say anything. I'm afraid of thinking what he's proposing is worth braving a firing squad for. What do you think? He says, nodding in the direction of the hall and the shadowy bachelors. 
Will I be seeing you later? I shrug. It's not up to me, is it? I don't even have the right of refusal. No, you don't have the right of refusal. He pauses and licks his lips. But you could throw the game. I look at him, half smiling and half severe, and he laughs. Well, will you look at that? I got a reaction from you. I don't know what it was, but it was something. Someone comes out from the hall. I immediately crouch down and pretend the hem of my dress is caught in my sandals. It's happened before. A sweep of red velvet brushes my cheek, and I know that it's Bella, dragging the train of her dress behind her like some captured dead thing, like a hunting trophy slung over her shoulder and oozing down her back. She's drawing her breath in ragged gasps and staggering as she heads towards the bathroom. Is it the fear, or has something gone wrong for her? The door swings shut on her misery, and I get to my feet. He is turned to look at me now. That reaction, whatever it was, has made him bolder. You know, he says, even if you are chosen, you can slip out to the wash house during the last dance. The wild women asked me to tell you that. They really want you. They really want me? He stops smiling but doesn't look away. And then there's pain on his face, as if he's been stabbed from behind, and for a second my eyes flick downward to see if there's the tip of a blade and a spreading patch of red in the middle of his shirt. But then I remember where I am, and that he can see behind me. I turn to see Mrs. A peering into the passage, blinking under the sudden electric lights. Amanita? My dress got caught, I answer automatically. He has composed his face now, back into the look of stolid indifference you see on security guards everywhere. The cigarette has disappeared. He must have done that automatically, pain or not, because his cigarettes are his sanity. He can't have them confiscated. She takes hold of my elbow. If it wasn't prom night, her grip would have been a lot harder, but my arms are bare and she doesn't want the bruises to show. Besides, I might be someone else's property in half an hour. What would they say if I wasn't delivered in good condition? I don't look back at him as she tows me away, but I can't forget that look of pain either. He knew our time was up and I could see in every line of his face that he never expected to see me again. I go back into the hall, and Bachelor Number 5 buys me a long drink, with swirls of green and blue and sticky pink. Even after I've drunk it, I can feel it coating my throat and lying heavy in my stomach. Then Alexander comes up to me again, and I glance over his shoulder to the passage leading out to the bathrooms, wondering if Adam is going to nod significantly or mime the biting of his classmates for my amusement. But he's gone. I suppose there's only one way to see him again. I don't know what I'll do. I haven't made up my mind yet. All I can think is that, past the fence, there's a pine-dark forest 
with scraps of mist threading through the canopy. And I want to see every dew-soaked needle. And there you go. Huge thank you, Lucy. Thank you so much. Honestly, that was a story. And Summer, what can I say? Huge thank you. Huge thank you indeed. So nice to have you back on. Like I say, 2006 is when this little fledgling one it was still going, man. All my hair now is nearly grey. <laughs> it was, certainly was when I started. <sighs> anyway, do think about support where we kind of the the the. the Cost and figures are getting a little bit crunchy there. If you can pop over to Patreon and just put a like a monthly donation, would be absolutely fantastic. Like you say, there's all. It's, I know this is kind of harping on, but the dollar and the pound are just not compatible at the minute. And what I'm getting is just hardly even covering anything at the moment. So if you can help, that would be honestly unreal, and I'd be appreciated so much. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. Thank you for listening. I don't get out much. I've barely left the ground. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. I'm pointing them to the moon. But the work is going slowly. It won't get to you anytime soon. Can you? me is my signal getting through turn on your radio i want to talk to you this signal's going light speed by the time i get my say i might already be on to you and on my way but you're so far from here and at best I'm moving slow So I'm waiting on your call at home With nowhere to go Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio I want to talk to you I want to talk to you Myself on a radio wave, I might get to you someday. If books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out. 